Support for this podcast comes from San Francisco International Airport. At SFO, you can discover award-winning flavors and unique shops all before takeoff. Learn more about what's at SFO at flysfo.com. Hey there, this is Brittany Luce from NPR's It's Been a Minute. KQED's podcasts like The Bay, Bay Curious, Mind Shift, Right Nowish, and more all tell the stories of the Bay and beyond with reliable, human-centered journalism. They aim to inspire, make you think, entertain, and expand your understanding of the place you call home. Here's how you can support podcasting at KQED. Showing your support is easy, and you can join Brittany in supporting KQED Podcast too at donate.kqed.org slash podcast. That's donate.kqed.org slash podcast. From KQED. Good morning. This is the California Report. I'm Alex Hall in Fresno. Today marks the one-year anniversary of the Atlanta spa shootings, in which eight people were killed, six of them Asian women. KPCC's Josie Huang says in L.A., remembrances will be deliberately muted. After the shootings last year came vigils and rallies. In L.A., hundreds marched through Koreatown, but not this year. Steve Kang is with the Koreatown Youth and Community Center. We're now going to observe eight minutes of silence at the precise time of the incident. Eight minutes for each victim at 1.52 p.m. Kang said the groups had been planning an in-person event, but canceled last week. When we found out that the victims' families in Atlanta asked for a day of reflection and mourning, we wanted to be respectful of their wishes. For community organizer Dee Barbadillo, the day will be a time to check in with her Asian-American friends. Recent violence against Asians in New York has shaken many of them. Whatever wounds were healing last year have been almost sliced open again. There will be a handful of rallies across the country. In California, events are scheduled for San Francisco and Sacramento. For The California Report, I'm Josie Huang. And some of my KQED colleagues will be at the Asian Art Museum in San Francisco this afternoon to document a memorial event spearheaded by the nonprofit Asians Are Strong. Go to kqed.org for coverage of that event. Meanwhile, a new report out of Cal State LA finds two-thirds of Asian Americans and Pacific Islanders in LA County are worried about becoming a victim in a racist attack. Eighty percent of the 1,500 AAPI residents polled in the county last fall say anti-Asian racism has been a serious issue during the pandemic. Our survey found that one-fourth of APIs in Los Angeles reported being victim of a hate incident crime during the pandemic. Nathan Chan is with the Pat Brown Institute of Public Affairs, which conducted the study. He says younger generations were more likely to be targeted because of their race and that verbal or physical abuse occurred, as well as property damage. Historically, anti-Asian violence is not new and continues through today. A large majority of survey participants want to see funding for police increase or stay the same, and more than 90% said they were likely to vote in the midterms this year. Newly released documents from the California Department of Corrections and Rehabilitation show the agency disciplined officers for racist posts after George Floyd's death. KQED's Suki Lewis got those records under a new state law, and she joins us now. Suki, tell us a little bit about how you got your hands on these records. 
Well, Senate Bill 16 passed last year, which expanded the law enforcement records that the public is allowed to see to include cases where officers were found to have been discriminatory. I filed a request with CDCR and recently received a first batch of records, which included these three cases of guards who'd been disciplined for racial discrimination. So you're going through these documents. What did you find? And before you answer, we want to warn listeners that these records contain offensive language. Well, two of the officers who worked in two different prisons made really offensive comments on Facebook about a week after George Floyd's death in Minneapolis. Joshua Priester, who works at Folsom, said Floyd's death meant, quote, one less loser, end quote. And he suggested that if Floyd had been white, he wouldn't have been killed by police because he would have been at work. Wow. So what happened when CDCR found out about this? The secretary of CDCR at the time, Ralph Diaz, sent out a memo to all employees calling the posts, quote, extremely hurtful and disrespectful and reminding everyone to take a look at the law enforcement code of ethics. The agency eventually moved to fire Sanchez and suspended Priester for 60 days. At this point, it's not clear if those officers appealed their firing and the union didn't respond to requests for comment. Did the memo have any impact? Well, one of the impacts that the memo had is that it inspired a group of black employees of CDCR to write their own letter in response. You know, they felt that this was a missed opportunity by administrative staff to engage with black employees and see how they were doing in the wake of this really horrific incident, um, George Floyd's killing at the hands of police. And they made a list of things that they felt that the department could do to start to address inequity, unfair hiring practices, unfair promotion practices within the organization. And so they sent that letter, you know, right after Ralph Diaz sent out his letter. And I just spoke to them and they said since then, it's now been another two years have passed, basically nothing has been done. The department hasn't taken any actions to, you know, make their their organization more diverse and more equitable. So big picture, what do you think these records tell us about California's prison system? I think it's really important to remember that this system is one that disproportionately locks up black and brown people. And so the mentality and the accountability of the officers who work in these facilities is a huge part of that. CDCR said in their official response to me that they don't tolerate discrimination and that the disciplinary actions taken by the department show their efforts to ensure racial justice and equity. But one of the things I really noticed that was glaringly missing from the records that I got was any review or consideration of how or if the attitudes of these officers um, impacted their treatment of the people in their custody. And the CDCR didn't answer any questions about that. Thanks for your reporting, Suki. Thank you, Alex. That was KQED criminal justice correspondent Suki Lewis. Hi, I'm Sasha Koka, host of the California Report magazine. Every week, we bring you stories about what connects us in the giant, diverse Golden State. Because what happens in California changes the world. I love this place. We were once seen as, like, the place to be California. The land of milk and honey, that's where you go to Sunshine State, but we just have challenges right now. KQED's California Report magazine. New episodes drop every Friday, wherever you get your podcasts. Hi there, I'm Randa Abdel-Fattah from Throughline. 
If you're listening to this podcast, you know that KQED produces exceptional storytelling that keeps you informed, inspired, and entertained. Their podcasts cover issues from your neighborhood to the entire country and everything in between. Support this work today. You can help us continue to bring quality podcasts to your ears. Just head to donate.kqed.org podcast. That's donate.kqed.org podcast. From racial disparities in arrests to the percentage of crime solved and the cost of policing, San Francisco is performing worse than other major cities across the state. That's according to a report out this week from the Center on Juvenile and Criminal Justice. KQED's Alex Emsley has more. The CJCJ's report compares San Francisco to five other big cities. We basically found that of the major cities in California, San Francisco has the worst police department overall. Senior researcher Mike Mills says San Francisco spends a lot on policing per resident, while arrest rates have fallen significantly. We're not seeing it in other cities or around the state. We're mainly just seeing it in San Francisco. And it's a massive decline in the percentage of offenses that are solved by an arrest. An SFPD spokesperson said the report is politically motivated and fails to account for the city's large number of tourists compared to other cities. For the California Report, I'm Alex Emsley in Oakland. The family of a man who died in California Highway Patrol custody says a video proves that CHP officers killed him. KPCC's Robert Garova has the story. The video was released as part of a wrongful death lawsuit filed by the family of 38-year-old Edward Bronstein, who died after a DUI stop in L.A. in 2020. Bronstein was refusing to allow officers to take a blood sample. The video shows five of them pinning him to the ground, face down. Bronstein shouts, I can't breathe, at least eight times as officers continue to forcibly restrain him. After roughly two minutes, Bronstein goes silent and limp. A medical staffer and the officers spend several minutes trying to revive him. He died that day. Bronstein's daughter, Brianna Palomino, a plaintiff in the case, says her father left behind five children. His screams, his face, them slapping him around. It will live in my head forever. The family's lawyers called for criminal charges against the officers. A spokesperson for the DA's office said the matter remains under review. CHP did not comment, citing the lawsuit. For the California Report, I'm Robert Garova in Los Angeles. Public records reveal that between 2014 and 2019, more than 40 percent of people seriously injured or killed by Bakersfield police displayed signs of a mental health condition or intoxication. That's according to a new analysis done by Valley Public Radio and the California Reporting Project. KVPR's Sarith Hawk reports. Kelly James hadn't seen her brother in too long. It was sweltering hot, August 2014. She drove all over Bakersfield, scanning the streets for him. Then she drove past a gas station on East Brundage Lane. It was blocked off with police tape. I passed by the place, and I just seen it, that crime scene, and I just felt it in the pit of my stomach. Her gut feeling was right. Her brother, 26-year-old Michael Dozer, lay bleeding in the parking lot. A Bakersfield police officer had shot him in the stomach. God, just a few more minutes. If I could have just been at the life where got there just maybe 30 minutes sooner, I could have stopped it, you know. Dozer suffered from schizophrenia. He had grown paranoid and heard voices. At the gas station, he splashed gas on the ground and started a fire. Arriving on scene, 
Officer Aaron Stringer called for backup and speculated that Dozer was on drugs. According to the police reports, Dozer approached fast, with the bike lock over his head. Stringer shot. Dozer was pronounced dead at the emergency room. And I just struggled with that for so long. I just struggled with it. The California Reporting Project analyzed records released by the Bakersfield Police Department related to the use of force over a six-year period. Out of 18 people who died, 11 had a mental health condition, like Michael Dozer, or were intoxicated, or both. Here's Lisa Pickoff-White, the project's data journalist. We counted people described as crazy or strange by witnesses or callers to 911. People with a confirmed diagnosis, like schizophrenia, People who displayed signs of disability or erratic behavior on scene, according to police reports, and people who demanded police harm them. Our review found mental health was a factor in 41% of these cases. Former police officer Seth Stoughton is a law professor at the University of South Carolina. He studies how police use force. Unfortunately, officers are disproportionately likely to use force against individuals with mental health conditions. The Bakersfield Police Department didn't agree to an interview about our findings. In a written comment, a spokesman said our interpretation of the data, quote, appears inaccurate. And the spokesman said the biggest error is, quote, the idea that anything about the use of force can be judged posthumously to include some kind of mental health exemption for deadly force. How the Bakersfield Police Department uses force has come under major scrutiny in the last decade. A surge of citizen complaints led to an investigation by the California Department of Justice. Last August, Attorney General Rob Bonta and the Bakersfield Police Department announced an agreement under which the department will reform its practices. Also last fall, the department settled a wrongful death lawsuit with the Dozer family for a quarter of a million dollars. Mary Crawford, Dozer's grandmother, says more than seven years after his death, she still thinks of him daily. Go to the cemetery and put flowers on the grave, you know. So, um, you know, it's just a void in your heart. For the California Report, I'm Sarith Hawk. Coming up on the next part of this investigation, a closer look at how the Bakersfield Police Department responds now when a person is in a mental health crisis. Support for the California Report comes from Stanford Medicine. Protecting your health and providing dependable care with safe in-person appointments and video visits. StanfordHealthCare.org slash AdaptingCare. Paint Care. Now with 834 drop-off sites in California where households and businesses can recycle their leftover paint. More at PaintCare.org. And Eric and Wendy Schmidt whose philanthropy harnesses the power of people and science to create innovative solutions for a healthy environment, just societies, and opportunities for human achievement. And that's the California Report for Wednesday, March 16th. We're a production of KQED Public Radio. I'm Alex Hall. Thanks for listening and have a great day. Do you love learning about the San Francisco Bay Area? It's history, it's people, it's unique blend of cultures? Then you should check out the Bay Curious book. I'm Katrina Schwartz, editor and producer on the Bay Curious podcast, and I'm here to let you know that for the month of May, we've worked out a sweet deal for KQED podcast listeners. 
Right now, you can get the Bay Curious ebook for $1.99. That's right, $1.99. Just search for Bay Curious wherever you get your ebooks or find a link in our show notes. This offer does expire at the end of the month, though, so you'll want to act on it fast. Happy reading! Hey, it's Avery Truffleman, host of Articles of Interest. And I've got to say, I've been a fan of KQED ever since I was a little kid, and I would come out to San Francisco to visit my grandma. It was just what we'd always turn on every time we got in the car, every time we were making dinner and turning on the radio. It was always KQED. And then over the years, I've become a massive fan of KQED podcasts because this is local reporting at its best. These are answers to questions you've always wanted to know, interviews with exciting, unusual voices, necessary journalism, all told with love and care and artistry. And did you know that a majority of KQED's funding actually comes from members? It's just people like you and me supporting the programs they love while also getting access to cool events, behind-the-scenes footage, and so much more. If you want to sign up and be a part of this amazing community, visit donate.kqed.org slash podcasts to become a member today. That's podcasts with an S. Thank you for listening, and thank you for your support.